Um, the, uh, the exhibition from Ballots uh, to Bullets, Ireland 1918 to 1919. And uh, on the panel we have uh, Neve Purcell, uh, here to my right. Uh, on my left, uh, Brian Hanley, a regular uh, History Ireland uh, uh, head school uh, participant. And finally, uh, Liz Gillis. Okay, so what we want to discuss is the, the, the material arising from this exhibition, the end of the First World War, uh, the suffragette movement, uh, the global flu pandemic, uh, the first meeting of Dáil Éireann, of course, and the outbreak uh, of the War of Independence. Um, Niamh, maybe just go to you first. Um, let, let's, let's, let's look at the situation in 1918, say, second half of 1918. Uh, what is the situation in Ireland? Obviously, you have the, uh, the campaign against uh, conscription. So how is the war impacting on Irish society at this stage? Well, obviously, by the second half of 1918, the war has been ongoing for four years and uh, people are exhausted, uh, food shortages are, are, are still a, a major issue, sorry I'm very echoey here, um, and um, there's, a, there's a level of, of, of just very much t uh, tiredness within society itself, but also there have been a lot of campaigns ongoing during the, the, the year and I think uh, it's, it's important in the context of what we've seen over the last few weeks in terms of um, remembering the armistice, that we also remember the campaign against conscription, which had happened earlier on in the war, or earlier on in the year. So that while um, there's a, a, a great deal of, um, people are very happy that the war is over, but I think when we look at the kind of coverage that uh, the, the end of the war has had over the last little while, that we remember that there was also a great deal of opposition to Irish participation uh, in the war during that time, and that is still very much a factor in Irish politics by the time we get to the, the, the sort of um, towards what will be the, the first general election in, in a very long time. So people are getting ready for that election. Um, and Sinn Féin are getting ready, the labour movements are getting ready at the time, and people are focused on what's going to happen after the war. So we've moved from, from, from war to peace and what's going to happen in the peace. Just before we get to the election, Brian, uh, just uh, before we finish with the war, did its end come as a surprise? Because you have this grinding campaign, very little movement, certainly on the Western Front, and then suddenly, well, relatively suddenly, it's all over. I mean, it, it certainly would have looked like a surprise in the spring of 1918 when the Germans had, had launched their huge offensive in the West, which is one of the reasons why the British had come up with the idea of, of extending conscription to Ireland, because they were, for a little while, it looked like the Germans were actually going to, to win the war with a very audacious offensive after Russia had pulled out and so on. Um, but by the summer of 1918, you've got the introduction of hundreds of thousands of new American troops. Um, you begin to see very importantly, among the central powers, collapse in morale in the Ottoman Empire, collapse in morale in Austria uh, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the growing demand for self-determination, which we'll come back to, these empires look like they're beginning to crack. And then in Germany itself, you've got a wave of strikes, um, disillusionment with the war, ultimately German sailors refuse to, to go to sea. So that also plays a part in the fact that the the Germans, who'd looked six months before like they were in a relatively strong position, are now being weakened. Um, and then when it does end, obviously people are relieved, but the killing goes on right to the last 
few minutes and indeed into the next couple of days. And it doesn't stop, as we know, because these things aren't resolved in, in much of Europe. Um, and the, you know, the, the initial relief and jubilation, in Ireland at least, is still quite mixed because, you know, and, and I think we'll discuss this later on, by 1918, for most nationalists, the war is considered a huge mistake. So there is relief that the war has come to an end, but there's also anger that thousands of Irish men had been killed and so on. And this leads to, you know, quite a, a, a you know, confrontation on the streets of Dublin on Armistice Night. People come out to celebrate the armistice. Many of them are... Charlie I wasn't there, was he? No, he wasn't at that one. Um, but there are people who march down from Christchurch with Union Jacks and Trinity students celebrate and so on, and they're celebrating victory. But then some of them attack Republican targets. They besiege Sinn Féin's offices. There's violent clashes. Um, several people are badly injured, and one member of Sinn Féin later, later dies. So again, you, you see the, 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 the debate about the war, even in the midst of its ending, you know, taking place on Ireland's streets, and that shows how divisive the war was. I mean, is there a perception, like before the election, right? Because uh, election obviously changes everything. That it's Sinn Féin that are on the back foot. It, it, the fact is, like two hundred thousand Irish served uh, in the British Army during the war. Mm -hmm. Less than two thousand insurgents turned out in Easter nineteen sixteen. You know, I mean, I, I'm just thinking. Uh, you can well imagine Trinity students attacking a Sinn Féin office mm -hmm. because they think they're 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 uh, the predominant position. Yeah, they, they probably would have thought that it had given them, the, the loyalist perspective, a boost, the victory of, of Britain in the war and the United Kingdom. But even by that stage, I mean, one, I would argue that you never had the level of enthusiasm in Ireland that you had in Britain anyway. So even in 1915, levels of recruitment were, were relatively low. Um, but also then, yes, in the spring of 1918, the Home Rule Party had won three by-elections and people had thought that Sinn Féin's upward um, rise had, had been halted. But then you've got the conscription crisis and then the, the so-called German plot and the, the arrest of dozens of, of Sinn Féin leaders and other Republicans. And this creates its own backlash. So actually, again, the momentum seemed to be coming back to the separatists by the winter of, of 1918. And plus there's all these other things going on as well, which, which Neve has alluded to and which no doubt we'll talk about. So I think by, by the end of the war, it did, looks like you know, Sinn Féin are in a pretty strong position. And their policy of, with all its contradictions, of basically just being against the war is one that a lot of nationalists say, well, that was correct. Now, just um, before we get on to the, the election, before we finish with the war, right, um, Liz, if I could bring you in there, because the war obviously had a huge effect on the position of women in society, mm. uh, which doesn't maybe become apparent till, till later. She just talk to us about that, like how did the war affect uh, women in our, all, right across the whole spectrum? Well, you have the women um, who are basically going into the workforce, um, so women have a lot of freedom um, by working in the shell factories and so on, and that empowers a lot of women. And when the war ends, they, a lot of them don't want to go back into the box that they had been in previous. But the huge thing with the war um, is Lana Mon. Um, the impact of Lana Mon on the 9th of June 1918 is a huge moment in history for Irish women because this is where the women of Ireland um, basically realise they have power within the conscription movement or the campaign because if men are conscripted into the army, the women would have to fill their place in the workforce. Yeah. So they're not just part of the national campaign, they're part of their own individual campaign and two swords of the women of Ireland sign 
the women's pledge on the 9th of June. Um, and what is really significant about that is because we know at the start of the year under the Representation of People's Act, women over the age of 30 are getting the vote with certain conditions. However, with Law and Amon, it is so many young women that will not get, mm -hmm. don't get to have, to have that right to vote that are actually using their voice and are making a difference by signing their names to that pledge. And when you've got two sorts of women of Ireland saying no to the British government, they have to take no and they do listen because in response to that then, you had proclamations issued by the authorities where you had to apply for permission to have gatherings and protests. There was always an end date. Two days after Law and Amman, another proclamation is issued and there's no end date in mm -hmm. sight. And mm -hmm. so the women are politicised in 1918 thanks to the war as well. Niamh, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I think um, as well, but obviously the, the women in the labour movement are very important. We have There's a photograph in the exhibition of Delia Larkin who's involved in, in, in this as well. Um, uh, women were, the, the experience of women in Ireland is different to that in the rest of the UK because of the sorts of, I mean it is, uh, the, the, they are more involved in the workplace but it is less sort of, um, full scale than it is in, in, in Britain because Britain has conscription and, and it isn't here. So like that's that's another important um, thing to bear in mind. But like like Liz says, it's 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 hugely important in terms of mobilising women. Obviously the, the the women's suffrage movement has taken is on the back step um, to a large extent during the war, um, having sort of reached its high point in um, 1914 or so, so so that's hugely important as well. And and these people are all involved; they're all active, and they're all ready to go. Sort of when when the election is coming up then in in, in December. It does lead to some what we now regard as kind of rather un PC slogans like "Women don't take a man's job." Yeah. You know, uh, whereas you know you might think take the job, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, Brian, just on, on the question of women, though, I mean, not all women were, were, were shinners. I mean, you, you have the separation women. I mean, they, they, they are hugely important in, in, in what happens here. Yeah, I mean, the... Uh, so explain what a, what a separation woman is, first of all. One of these terms that gets bandied about, like, just, just uh, explain what, what, what the term means. So, soldiers in the British Army um, who were married, um, allowances went to their wife, and depending on the number of children they had, this allowance would go up. I think ultimately, um, and this was a very controversial measure, unmarried mothers who were partners of soldiers were also um, allowed some, some money as well. I seem to remember that's a, that's a controversy. One. But, but yeah. it, it, again, you know, if you had, a, had been a reservist in the British Army and you were called back up, there were whole scales of money. Right. And this made a real difference to particularly unskilled working class living standards. Well, that means for a lot of families, that's, that's yeah. the first time they have a steady income. Yeah. yeah. So there is an actual rise, it's been argued, in particularly among the unskilled living standards during the war among women and children um, because of these separation mm. payments. Mm. Now, mm. unfortunately, the separation women are, are the subject of, they, they turn up a lot in accounts of the war, but we don't have any diaries or books by separation women, so it's always other people talking about them. And what people tend to talk about is that one, they spend all the money on drink, they come from the roughest parts of town anyway, not just inner city Dublin, but the, the lanes in the country towns and so on, where again the British Army would have recruited heavily. They're often associated with opposition to republicanism. So well before the rising, you know, in 1914, 1915, volunteer rallies in towns are often assailed by separation women, they say. Um, 
1917, 1918 into the general election, separation women are often at the forefront of clashes, which in Fein canvassers and so on. And they identify usually with the Home Rule Party at this stage, which again is interesting in itself. Now, Republicans tend to say they were getting lots of money from the British Army and they loved the war so much that they wanted the war to go on forever. And there's all these kind of stories about them, you know, you know, thanking, you know, saying that we hope the Pope's, you know, peace efforts fail because, you know, what's wrong with war? It's great. A lot of that is definitely gendered and also class-based. I mean, the people who are talking about separation women don't usually come from the same class as them. I don't know how much of their opposition to Republicans is due to localism and, you know, for example, 1915 is a big volunteer march through Limerick City, goes through some of the toughest parts of Limerick. A lot of the volunteers came from Tipperary and Clare and Cork, and they get a rough time. And whether that's due to pro-British sentiment or just who are these guys walking through our lanes is another question. So, but they are there all the time. They come up, pop up through all the election reports, particularly, usually, you know, outside of Ulster, but also in West Belfast, and separation women are a factor there. But they're, they're always in this part of this story. Um, and what their actual motivation is, I think we still need to. They're, they're the Bessie Burgesses of, of, of history. And, and we have to remember that the, the war happened, or the war broke out very soon after the lockout ended. So a lot of people who would have found themselves, um, you know, absolutely destitute after the lockout, subsequently signed up. So the numbers of people who, who signed up from the Transport and General Workers Union into the British Army to fight in the war were, were enormous. And, and that's something that's often sort of uh, the more of an emphasis is put on the people who signed up uh, from the volunteers who heeded Redmond's call or you know wanted to save little Belgium or that kind of thing. But there was a very strong element of people from you know very poor areas, particularly of Dublin, who signed up as a, because of a, an economic impetus, and they're the ones who are in there, and uh, and it's their wives who are sort of part of that contingent for to a large extent. Liz, can I, let's get on to the election now, right? Uh, which is the, the main focus of this this, uh, this whole exhibition. Um, was the result? Did it come as a huge surprise for someone? I mean, it's, it's, it's a landslide victory for Sinn Fein, no matter what way you crunch the numbers. But how big a surprise was that at the time? Probably at the time, maybe it wasn't as much of a surprise as many people thought. Considering, if you look at the way the year, as Brian mentioned, the difference. Um, from the start of the year to the end of the year. And there'd been a lot of support for Sinn Féin, certainly after the conscription uh, campaign. Um, but the fact that, I don't think maybe people expected the IPP to be, the parliamentary party to be, to be completely wiped out. Um, so yeah, it, 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 I don't think, I, they knew, they themselves knew they were going to do well. Because um, Harry Boland, um, actually on Armistice night, they had a meeting in the mansion house and Harry Boland, they had, were planning a meeting for, to actually to, to set out the campaign, talk about the general election, and then the, ar the armistice was announced. But they were like, right, we'll still have the meeting. Um, and they start talking about the general election. Harry Boland says, look, sure, we're going to get between 75 and 80 seats anyway. So either he was pretty psychic or he just hit the nail on the head. But that's what they were targeting. So to them, it maybe wasn't a surprise to the British Yes, and they had a big fear, and the newspaper reports are great when the election results are announced, because one of the, the headlines is the British anxiety of all of these Sinn Féin politicians sitting in Westminster. 
Mm-hmm. That would, would have been easy because at least it would be able to keep an eye on them. Um, there's a bigger threat. That's, that's still in the news. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so to Sinn Féin, they, they had an estimate and they pretty much a target that they hit. But I don't think others thought that it would be such an overwhelming victory and whitewash of the IPP. Now, Neve, like for, uh, for the Irish Parliamentary Party people, many of them hadn't fought an election in years. This is the thing. I mean, for, for many of them, elections were, were not something that they did. There, there were so many of the seats. So many people didn't stand again anyway. But there were, there were seats that hadn't been contested in absolutely decades. So they weren't, they weren't fighting fit by any stretch of the imagination. They, they just expected that when an election came along that they, came, they were returned. Many of them were returned unopposed for successive elections. So for them, it was not something that was um, part of their... They, they had a, a sort of a, a right to be returned, I suppose, if you yeah, like. Yeah. And that, that, that did not... I mean, there, was, there were efforts to appeal to some of the new voters and that kind of thing, and to, to, to appeal to women to an extent, and to appeal to the, the um, poor, newer voters and that kind of thing on the part of Joe Devlin, for instance. But they absolutely weren't used to actually fighting an election, and, and that showed. How, how bigger was the electorate in 1918 compared to the, the previous election, which would be 1910? I mean, what, it was nearly three times the size. So it went so it's a from, new electorate package. So, uh, but it not only, it, it went from about 700,000 to just under 2 million. So, and, and among those, you have all the women who are voting for the first time. But it's, I think if you look at it in a different way, there was only three, about 300,000 people who had actually ever voted before. That's, that's a better way of looking at it than looking at the size of the electorate. So the number of new voters was, as a proportion, it was colossal. So, you know, very few people had ever voted before. Okay. And they were voting for the first time. And some people suggest that that sort of, they, they developed a habit of voting for Sinn Féin then afterwards and that this was sort of a, a ma- major mobilising election and that kind of thing, which is kind of suspect if you look at sort of what happened subsequently. But basically, people, people were, it, it was as though it was an entirely new electorate. Now, the, the, the IPP, the Irish Parliamentary Party, had opposed uh, extending the, the vote to women, right? I mean, any evidence then the women were waiting for them in the long grass <laughs> in this election? I mean, I, 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 I presume it's, how, how can we, is there any, is there any means of, of uh, finding that out? I mean, or, or, you know, in terms of research? Can we get to, can we can we get into the, 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 the secrecy of the ballot the ballot uh, booths? I mean, there is. Sinn Fein do seem to have benefited from the fact that the party had generally always been in favour of electoral equality for women, and you know there were prominent women involved in Sinn Fein's campaign. Only two of them stood, but there were a lot more women who were associated with the party. But the unionists also very effectively mobilised women, and they'd been doing that since the Home Rule crisis. So, I mean, some of the early Irish feminist campaigners were unionists, and some of them were still around in 1918. So both Sinn Féin and the unionists, you know, had prominent women and, and had women canvassers and all that. But one thing I would say about Sinn Féin is that they didn't sit back and assume they were just going to do brilliantly. They actually did the, the bog-standard electoral groundwork. I mean, since the spring... They'd been registering voters, they'd been establishing new clubs, they come and had to select candidates, everybody had to, you know, they were doing 
normal electoral work in extraordinary times. So they were, you know, really taking the election very seriously. They weren't just, they weren't simply standing on, we're the people of 1916, vote for us. Mm -hmm. they, they did, they were involved in land agitation, they were involved in protests over food prices. Um, individual candidates like Dr. James Ryan in Wexford was very prominent as a doctor during the influenza crisis. And this, that was strong Redmondite territory and it did him no harm to be a very, you know, well-known local GP and so on. So they, they did, the bog standard stuff as well, and they mobilised people uh, in a way that the Home Rule Party couldn't really do anymore to a great extent. That's why one of the reasons why they didn't contest a whole suite of, suite of constituencies. And the Unionists would have found difficult to do essentially outside of Ulster, with a few exceptions, because the Unionist population were, were a minority. They, they very much did all that, uh, and they were very good on the ground, and they, they, were, they, they were in it to win it but they were also very good at uh, clearing the pitch of other people who might um, also stand. So for instance, they were uh, very active in trying to make sure that the Labour Party, which was uh, due to fight, its, which had decided in, in um, the Easter of 1918 that it would stand in the election. They were um, active in trying to persuade them to not stand in the 1918 election. So, um, and ultimately, partly because of persuasion, but partly because of just a realisation that there was a, a feeling on the ground that uh, people wanted a straight straight vote on the issue. They, uh, Labour then didn't contest the, the 1918 election, sort of only, and only decided to, to do so about six weeks before polling day. So, I mean, they had actually chosen some candidates and everything and then reversed the decision to do that. So, um, they were certainly, the, the Sinn Féin were very good at preparing in every way possible and, and also in terms of cooperating with Cardinal Logue in, um, in a voting pact in the North. But if Labour didn't stand, I mean, surely the, 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 the blame should be, the blame is be laid, should be laid at the, at the door of Labour. Uh, Liz? I, mean, I was just going to, if I just go back to the point, yeah, just, yeah. To, just as in on the women, um, the IWFL, um, they were really active in organising meetings and giving out and reminding people, young women, um, and Just women who's that ages, side, the, the, uh, the Women's Franchise League, so Hannah okay, Shea's yep. group, um, that the Irish Parliamentary Party were not in favour of votes for women. Um, they're now just trying to entice you to, to use your vote, but they're not really for women. Um, and in Leonard's Corner, um, so near Harold's Cross there, there was a big meeting. And you had Nora Connolly, James Connolly's daughter, you had Maud Gone, um, you had IWFL members all speaking on behalf of Countess Markovich and what Sinn Féin were standing for. So they're out actually spreading the word to the women and, and again the newspapers are fantastic because there isn't a headline and it says that that election was the women's election. So although we don't know the numbers and what way the women voted, the women did come out in force to, to vote for, for Sinn Féin. I mean, not only do we not have polling data as well, like, you know, we're, we're spoiled for choice now. We get poll every couple of days and, you know, we, we can track sort of what people are saying. There's, there's none of that. I mean, that sounds kind of obvious, but we have none, none of that kind of information, but we don't even have most of the electoral information or we didn't for many, many years. I mean, I don't know if someone's managed to dig it up now, but over years, researchers would contact the British authorities and say, can we have the data for the actual election results? And they said, we don't have it. 
So, so even at a very basic level of sort of seeing the votes that came in and all the different kind of, you know, at that kind of level, we don't even have that. So anything that we're, we have been saying sort of about these elections for, for a long time is based on that. And then finally, I would just point out that there's also the issue of personation. I don't know what the rates were, but there are stories of like, you know, uh, women voting for 30 times. Uh, or, or just, you know, the idea of voting early and often uh, really sort of was, was part of the 1918 election and um, it, I don't think anyone would suggest that it swung it, but it happened. There were 37 cases of impersonation in Cork um, and again the newspapers reported on that and Vinnie Bourne, he said, a uh, member of the squad, um, he's re remembered that he voted at least 20 times and he just had a badge the way he said it was that they, the, the people in the, the, the office, they would just see the badges and they would know that it was Sinn Féin. So if they're voting again and again and again, you don't see anything. Um, and Dick Gogan, who was a volunteer in 1916, he voted at least eight times um, and once he dressed up as a priest. So there's a lot of, of cases of impersonation. And just one more thing again, three people died after casting their votes and two were women, literally minutes of, within minutes of casting their vote, um, they dropped dead. And two of them were women, but at least they, they got to make the vote anyway. Brian, you want to come back to this question of, of Labour opting out? Yeah, well just briefly, again, we, people probably know this, but I'll say it anyway, the, the election is fought under the first past the post system. So mm. it's the, the system which is still used in Britain, which is usually regarded these days as, as an unfair system in that you top the poll fine, but if the guy coming after you has only five votes less, tough luck, you know. So it means, for example, in, in, in Louth, Sinn Féin got maybe 11,500 and the Home Rule got 11,300. That means there's 11,300 Home Rule votes in Louth, but tough luck. It doesn't, yeah, you know, yeah. so, so it, you, you need to look at the votes as well, obviously, and the constituencies and stuff when we do kind of number crunching. But the fact is, you know, that was, that, that was the, the system and Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin topped the poll in, in most of the places where they stood. Um, on the question of Labour again, I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it would be interesting. They certainly had momentum with them. You know, they were a growing movement. The confidence was coming back uh, industrially. How many seats they would have won would have been open to question, but they certainly probably would have cost Sinn Féin votes in certain, in certain areas. Uh, the one place where Labour candidates did stand was in Belfast for breakaway or a Labour representation uh, council candidate stood. Um, best vote was maybe 3,500 on the Shankill, the unionists got about 11,000. Um, mm. But the guy, that Sam Kyle was top of the poll in local elections a year later, so there is a particular a base there. But I mean, I think they made the choice not to stand because if they did stand and win seats, what were they going to do? Because they hadn't committed themselves to abstentionism, which Sinn Féin had. So were, would Labour candidates have stood and then refused to take their seats in Westminster. If they stood and did badly, would this have completely dented the confidence of the movement? Would Labour have looked ridiculous? So, I mean, Sinn Féin apparently offered them some four seats, maybe, uh, a, a straight run, and that would have raised questions again if they'd won them about whether or not to take them. Um, what they were content with, I think, was to, to kind of ride along in nationalist Ireland with Sinn Féin's growth. I mean, in the end, Tom Johnson and Carlos Shannon are asked to contribute to the, the first Dawes democratic programme and so on. So there is some payoff, but it does mean that they're, they're, they're electorally, we just don't know how they live. Zini, you made the point there that this election where people got into the habit uh, of voting uh, Sinn Féin, 
uh, but they got into the habit of not voting for the Labour Party, right? Well, this is, I mean, this is a point that people like Brian Farrell would have made in the past, that not standing in 1918 damaged Labour irreparably ever after. But I think when you look at elections subsequently, particularly in the, the 1922 election, where they, you know, they didn't feel that many candidates, but every every candidate they 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 fielded won with one exception. So mm -hmm. it's it, it it damaged them to a certain extent. But I think the question is, would would it have been of any great benefit to them if they hadn't? I, I think Sinn Fein would have would would have swept the board regardless. I th just on a kind of a bit of a tangent there. Um, I've done some research on the um, National Teachers Organization, which is an all Ireland body, and. Um, the, the INTO um, became a, affiliated to the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, which was also part of the Labour Party at the same time. And um, a lot of unionists in the northeast of the country were very unhappy that they had become involved in what was seen as um, a, a nationalist um, party, but also uh, one which was associated with Bolshevism. Because I think you need to also bear in mind that this is everything that is happening in Ireland at this time is happening a year after the Russian Revolution. So the, the spectre of, 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 of Bolshevism is kind of being, being thrown out by kind of the Home Rule Party and so on. But a, a number of um, branches of the INTO in the Northeast. Uh, which would have been mostly mostly unionists, actually uh, left the organisation because um, because Labour didn't stand in the election. They said you're in you know you're in cahoots with Sinn Fein. You've made an agreement not to stand, and so you know you, you've you've tied your, your your yourselves completely to to Sinn Fein, and we we can't see any difference between you now. And they left as a as a consequence and, and established their own union. So I think. For, for Labour, um, it's a problem because they're an all-island body and, and upsetting people in the northeast of the country, particularly in Belfast and so on, is something that the, the trade union movement is, is always aware of, even though there is a very strong Republican element within that. Just before we want to the next question, I just want to remind everybody, particularly those people who haven't been at a head school before, uh, you, you are at school you know, and you're, you expect to sit straight and do a bit of work uh, ask questions. No, seriously, if you have any points to make, just raise your hand. It won't just be a Q&A at the end. So, uh, you know, at any point from here on in, if you want to uh, make a point or ask uh, uh, the panel a difficult question, here we go straight away. There's a, and we have a, a radio mic here. Uh, and do please use the mic because this is all being recorded, okay? No, I'm just very surprised by something Brian said about the first past the post method of the election in 1918. I remember being taught in school that the British had introduced proportional representation in order to try and confuse the voters, but that Sinn Féin had organised a campaign of election that people would understand it. Obviously, that's not true at all. That's the first I've heard that one. It's, the British did introduce PR mm. to try and, and weaken Sinn Féin a year later, because what they realised was that, that actually, you know, if, if the Home Rule Party won about 220,000 votes, so that's a lot of Home Rulers, and the Unionists won couple of hundred thousand as well. So the British introduced PR a couple of years later in local elections in order to, to try and diversify the electorate and weaken Sinn Féin. Now, in what must be one of the few examples of, of principle trumping everything else, Sinn Féin had always been in favour of PR, so they welcomed it. And <laughs> even though it did actually weaken them because they didn't win as many seats on Dublin Corporation or on Cork City Council that they would have in, in other ways, but they actually, they still won a majority. 
and they still won majorities in the local councils during 1920. So it didn't weaken them. But it did, of course, allow ex-home rulers and ex-servicemen and unionists and all the rest of it to be represented on local councils as well. So the British did introduce PR a little while later. Now, the question I wanted to ask, Brian, is to yourself, because Neve's already mentioned the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, uh, 1917. What was the, the international context of all this? I'm talking about the, the, the early 1919. First war was over. Peace conference has taken place in, in Paris. How does that affect Ireland? Yeah, I mean, the big, one of the big uh, stars of the era is, is President Woodrow Wilson uh, because of his talk of self-determination and so on. And that really does have a resonance in Ireland because what Sinn Féin, what De Valera and Arthur Griffith and others realise is that, you know, they're, they're asking, you know, people to accept that there's going to be complete independence from Britain. And a lot of people think that's a big ask. You know, the, the Home Rule Party calls Sinn Féin the rainbow chasers. It's partly because their flag is the tricolour. But also it's this idea that it's completely illusory. I mean, this idea that you're going to get complete independence, particularly, you know, if Britain wins the war, you know. So what Sinn Féin argue is that there is going to be a completely new world order. America is talking openly about this. President Wilson is talking about the right of nations to self-determination. They're talking about the breakup of empires across Europe, the Czechs, the Poles, Hungarians and so on are going to get their own nation states and that Ireland has to be part of this. So one of Sinn Féin's election um, um, you know, planks is that they will put forward the idea of self-government at the post-war peace conference and if you give them a mandate they will not go to Westminster but they'll go to Paris and they will argue for Ireland's position as an independent republic in this new world. Now there's all sorts of problems with that but it's also you know, brilliantly simple, simple idea in a world which is talking about self-determination. I mean, when the home rulers have been saying all year the idea of a republic is madness. In November 1918, it's Germany, it's, it's, it's Russia, Russia has become a republic, Germany becomes a republic, Austria yeah. becomes a republic, yeah. Hungary, you know, so Poland, and Sinn Féin publicised this. In the National Library, there's dozens of posters and leaflets from the election, and Sinn Féin continually stresses the Czechs have, have achieved statehood. Well, actually, you know, it's, it's, statehood, it's, you know? it's, it's a bit more peculiar than that. Yeah, is right. the, 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 this is the handbill you sent yeah. me uh, a few days ago. It's, uh, you know, it says the, Czech, the Czechoslovaks are to get you know, self-determination. Mm. Then it says, who are the Czechoslovaks, right? <laughs> you know, but everyone knows who the Irish are. Yeah. Why don't we, you know? Yes. So it, it's, it's not exactly PC uh, what yeah, they come out with, but it, it does have a certain wit to it, though, I have yeah. to say. And, yeah. and, and they, they, it's like a porcupine. They appeal to everybody. Yeah. I mean, and also this is the sophistication of their campaign, you know, that, that, I mean, it was almost like a global operation in a mm. sense. I mean, they were doing propaganda everywhere, mm -hmm. all over the world. And again, you see, it appeals to, when we can come back to this, I mean, there are a lot of people who Sinn Féin want to vote for them who are not necessarily, you know, enthusiastic about a war, you know, or aren't sure what that's going to involve. I mean, some young Sinn Féiners know that this means, you know, soon we'll be fighting the British, but a lot of people aren't sure whether that's a runner or not. So Sinn Féin are saying, look, give us a mandate and we will go to the post-war peace conference and we will get you independence. It doesn't mean we have to necessarily go to war for it. And that's somebody else's decision, you know. So it is a very powerful idea to mobilise people behind. And it's the, the idea of the age. You know, it is right across the world. Most of them to be disappointed. The Indians and the Egyptians and everybody else are saying, self-determination, this is what we're all going to get. Mm. So, I mean, in, in a sense, though, the, the, the situation exposes the hypocrisy of, of Wilson's position because it turns out it's self-determination mm. only for the, the nations of the defeated mm. empires. Yeah. Robert Lansing, who is the American Secretary of State, says privately at the time, this is, this is a disastrous idea. 
It's going to put ideas in the heads of the Irish, the Indians, the Egyptians, people who from self-determination is not meant for at all. So the president has made a, made a mistake. Whether it's a mistake or whether you know, it's a deliberate attempt by Wilson to weaken the central powers, which of course it is, because it's saying to hmm. the Czechs and the Hungarians and so on, you know, and, and the Poles, you know, stop fighting. You know, you, when we win, you'll get your nation states. And of course, it's only the defeated empires that are going to be broken up. But nevertheless, in the Ireland of November, December 1918, um, as the, the leaflet for this head school showed, the idea is Uncle Sam is going to introduce the Irish Republic to the peace conference. Neve, or, or, sorry, Liz, this brings in the whole question of the, the outbreak of the, the War of Independence, right? Um, and that's, that's a bit of a, that can be a movable date as well, depending on who you talk to. But normally, Sullivan, uh, 21st of January yeah. uh, 1919, is seen as the date. That was a, just talk to us about that, because the, the relation between the, the, the volunteers who carried out, you know, Dan Breen, Sean Tracy, whatever, I mean, they, they had no sanction from anybody. No. Um, and when you listen to, to Dan Breen, and right throughout 1918, Kerry was, was very active. Um, they were attacking RAC barracks. So the War of Independence is building momentum, and then it's unleashed on the 24th of January. But Dan Breen himself said, if, if you look at 1917 and you look at 1918, Sinn Féin had gone down the political route. And every response from the British, the authorities was coercive with the German plot arrest, um, Thomas Ash. Um, there's so many examples. And when you've got young men like Dan Brain, like um, the, the chap uh, Tom McGilligan down in Kerry, and what they're saying is the only thing that the British will respond to is violence. Yeah, I'm not going to wait for someone in Dublin to tell me when to act. Um, and that's what they do. They were planning solo headbag. Um, for a long time before it happened um, and they took their chance and they did it and then a response from General Headquarters up in Dublin because Sean Tracy and Seamus Robinson are hauled up to Dublin to answer for what they've done um, and Collins is waiting for them there with, with tickets to get out of the country and they're saying no if we do that it's murder but this is actually a political act we did this for a reason because they do not listen to anything other than violence but then you have Cal Brewer then coming in with this later on um, as the, 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 they want the, the IRA um, to be the army of the Republic. So if that's why you have the doll, um, the oath to the doll, because if you're the army of this government, mm. then the government will sanction your actions and take responsibility for your actions. But on the 21st of January 1919, that was impossible. That was something that came later. Is there a sense that the cart was before the horse here? Because the army, which was originally the Irish Volunteers, is older than the, than the state, well, the yeah. state that it claims to be uh, fighting for. In certain parts, um, again, Kerry was doing its own thing in, in 1918. Um, there are some people in the Volunteers that, that don't necessarily want to force, uh, uh, they don't want to be the instigators of a war. Um, and then they follow suit when you have Dan Breen and Sean Tracy with the action of Solo Headbag. Um, but then there are others up in Dublin, Dick McKee in 1918, when the volunteers were not fully equipped, when they were only getting themselves back on in, in training mode, he's out planning to attack the custom house in response to conscription. So you have this mix. So there you have when Solo Headbag happens, you have that division. Mulcahy, Richard Mulcahy is saying, no, they shouldn't be doing this, but Collins and others are supporting 
um, the actions of and the tell me, when, uh, what period do the volunteers begin to be referred to as the Irish Republican Army? It's uh, when... This, this is a, an issue I tease out my students yeah. continually. I don't know how, how is it with you? Well, <laughs> you know, you have it around mid to late 1919. With the, the, with the oath being taken to the doll, that's a big thing, where they are officially the army of the Irish Republic. So mid-1919? Mid um, mid-1919, starting by September. Um, but it does bear out the fact that the IRA is never founded as such. No, so they're using that term it's just a, in 1960. It's a change of name, before. right? Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it is in use before as well, if not very widely, you know, yeah. um, from 1916 and so on. Right. But the, but the other thing is that organisationally, it is separate from the, the political organisation or even point. from the, 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 theoret the, 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 the theoretical state that they're fighting for. Yeah, but that's the big thing with Calabrua and that's Calabrua's that is one thing he is determined to do because he was um, the, the he's like the, the the president of the executive in 1918 before the IRA really comes into existence and still the volunteers. But once the doll is set up um, and he's minister for defence, he is determined that you're not going to have an army doing its own thing and then the politicians, you know, making up or explaining after. Um, so he insists on the volunteers coming under the being uh, shown their allegiance to the doll because if what he then hopes to do is right well we're going to sanction your operations but we will also protect you um, it's the government that will give those orders for you to go out and attack military targets and that's why you then see his policy of going over to Britain to assassinate the British House of Parliament and members of the House of Parliament because he felt it's not the it's not the soldiers that are doing this, the government are sent them out to do this. So you don't target soldiers, you target politicians. And that's why he went over to assassinate the, the British politicians in 1918. So what he believes is the government is responsible for the actions of its army. Right. And to do that, you need to bring them into control. But then that has its own problems then in 1922. Now, I, 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 I want to come back to that, but before, I'm just looking at the time here, right? Nia, I want to bring you in here on the situation in what became Northern Ireland, right? Because, in a sense, a different type of conflict is raging there, uh, you know, from, you know, from, well, it, certainly from 1920, right? And there's also a question of people often forget how the unionist state in the 1918 <coughs> election. Um, quite well from their point of view. Well, uh, yeah, so come back to that, but can I just kind of roll back a moment? Sure. Because we've, we've, um, We've kind of gone from the election and the war of independence without mentioning the first meeting of the first all. Um, and I think that's it's kind of important that we uh, acknowledge that. Um, and because of what Brian was talking about with the, the looking outwards and the, the, the need to sort of um, engage with, uh, present Ireland as, as very much a, an independent power that is appealing to the nations of the world for, for uh, recognition of its status. So I think um, when we look at the, 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 the first meeting of the first all, so much of it is geared towards um, both establishing itself and, and its, uh, its authenticity and its, its right to, to sit, but also to appeal to the, the, the nations of the world. Um, by by um, having its uh, addresses in in French as well as in English and in Irish, which is which is important. Um, uh, but also the the, the um, inclusion of the democratic program, which is also an appeal. Not so not only is, is Sinn Fein appealing to Wilson and the people in Paris, but they're also appealing to um, 
the Soviet international and they're trying to sort of portray themselves as having been um, part of the, the workers' revolution as well. So the democratic program is brought in at the first meeting of the first all, in large part so that people can go to uh, the meeting of the, the Socialist International and say, here is this new state, and these are solid uh, proletarian <coughs> revolutionaries who are on our side, and we should, we should support them as well. So they're kind of hedging their bets to us. They're not hedging their bets, but they're, they're, they're recognizing that there are two fronts uh, at play, and they need to both court the, the, the people in Paris, but also the people. But it, you, what you're suggesting there, is, therefore, is that the democratic program is just some window dressing, basically, to, to appeal to the, the, the international labour organisation. Uh, th that, that would be a correct interpretation, I think, for the most part. I mean, the people who wrote it, it um, Tom Johnson is featured upstairs, um, and he uh, is largely responsible for, for the first draft of the democratic program. Um, which was really, it was quite a radical kind of um, document. And What's the gist of it? Just, just remind us what the gist of it is. It includes, um, well, it, uh, Johnson's version uh, had the, the uh, sort of possessor class being expropriated and the lands being redistributed, but it also includes the rights of the citizens to, uh, to the, the results of their labour and, and basically an idea that um, there are basic uh, things that everyone in the society should be entitled to, such as education, such as food, such as shelter, you know, that all of these things are, are, are rights. And that under the new republic, Whatever happened to that, that idea anyway. But and and so that that then was was given to um, to Sinn Fein people, and particularly the, the IRB cast a, cast an eye over it and said, well, we we're not mad about some of these aspects of it. Some of it got watered down. Some of it got taken out. Sean T. O'Kelly sort of took his notes together and put put a, a version together, but it was subsequently read. So it's. Uh, as, as one of the, the first documents that was read uh, at the, uh, the meeting of the first all on the 21st of December, so it, or January. So it is one of the, the kind of the, the cornerstones of the new state, if you like, uh, I mean, of, or, or the proto-state of the Republic, is this idea that the citizens of the Republic are entitled to all of, you know, all of these uh, things that they have, as, as citizens of a republic, that they should be entitled to. Now, it, it, it was adopted by acclamation without debate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we always be suspicious of anything that is, that is uh, voted for unanimously? The, I mean, there weren't, there weren't that is, if you, if you have, <laughs> What's that? There weren't that no, many no, but a serious point that, that if you have a policy that is the result of vigorous and even vitriolic discussion, right, mm -hmm. it means something. But if you just something this past, you know, uh, by but I mean, the, 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 what the value first, does it have? The first meeting of the doll was was not about having debates. Thankfully, like, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I mean, what happened was they went there and they sort of set out the agenda and they said, this is how, you know, they had a constitution for how it was going to work. So they said, this is how we're going to work it. We are, and they had a, a declaration of independence. They said, this is what we are. And then they said, and this is what we stand for. So that's basically what they did at the first meeting of the first doll. And, you know, it was only a matter of, 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 of weeks, practically, before people were saying, well, are we going to start doing this democratic program stuff? You see the thing that we said that we were going to do that day? Are we going to start doing it? And, people, and de Valera said, 
do you know what? Uh, it's a bit early for that now. <laughs> well, uh, we're in the middle of a war and we're going to deal with that and we'll look at the other stuff later. And, you know, so this is nearly 100 years ago and for decades people have argued over whether it was actually genuinely meant or if it was, as, as um, it's been described, a piece of mere poetry. Um, and, and some people were more inclined to roll their eyes at it than others. But I mean, interestingly enough, Fianna Fáil actually adopted it as one of the points in its career. So the Fianna Fáil constitution, um, working class, more radical members of Fianna Fáil in the 1920s said, we want this in our constitution. And they left it there until the 1990s. Like, it's only in the mid-90s that the implementation... That explains why Bertie Harron could describe himself as a socialist. He might have been the one to take it out, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, I'm just... Um, I'm just keeping on the time here, guys, so we'll be... If you want to ask any questions there, you need to get them in fairly quick. Yeah, just... To, Microphone here. Sorry, I think I think it's very easy with First Oil to uh, treat it as though it was a fully supported government with finance and independence and its own army in a little island to, ro to rule. Uh, they were a, a number of people under siege and only 27 members there, I think, is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everybody else was off in jail and a big audience. <laughs> so, they had, so they had supporters and even if they didn't debate, uh, there was, I think, a lot of substance in it. Uh, and the other thing I'd just like to mention is that the uh, idea of being at the peace table uh, at the end of the war came from the 1916 leaders. They had it as part of their intention. And part of the reason for declaring a republic on the first day of the rising was so that they could say that they had, had looked for independence, so that they could ask for a seat at the peace conference, but of course they didn't get it. And they, they, when they arrived, they were told, hump off. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, mention was a uh, very brief mention was made of the IRB and the discussion about the IRA and volunteers. What exactly was the role of the IRB and who was involved in it? That, that's a very good question. Who wants to answer it? And, uh, well, the IRB really were controlling everything. Um, it was under the I think at that stage, Collins may have been in the position because between 1917 he's he's not trusted. Um, Dick McKee would have been very much central, but then he, um, I don't know if he saw, there's a few different men that are in control of the IRB and then Collins is appointed um, as president of the Supreme Council. Um, the IRB are very central to, to what develops later. Um, and that starts in Frongock, certainly with Collins, the West Clark, Cork clique, um, for want of a better word, um, would be all, IRB men, Sean Hales and O'Meara and so on. So people have become very prominent later on. Um, the IRB, in my mind, um, it's an organisation that is never, ever, ever to be underestimated. Um, they thought they, after 1916, the British certainly thought that it was gone, but no way was it because, as you see, as the War of Independence goes on, um, the IRB are very, very central to the way the war progresses and the way it's fought and the leaders and the people that are targeted by the authorities to get rid of them. Right, yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, it's the IRB throughout its history had undergone a lot of different transformations. So 
the IRB in 1916 wasn't the same as the IRB in the 1870s, and, and the one post-1916 is different again, because De Valera had only been very briefly in the IRB anyway, left it. I think Cahill Brewer leaves it, is very angry about it. Jerry Boland, I think, leaves it, whereas Harry is obviously, his brother is, is, is a member. And there is a lot of, you know, the, within the IRA itself, there's always a bit of suspicion. Um, the, the, IRA, the IRB are the elite, you know, they're upholding the Republic, only they have the right to uphold the Republic. Then there's those who are more conflicted about whether, how important is this election? You know, we've, the people have actually voted for something now, so is that the Republic? So you've got all these things which re-emerge, you know, especially during the, the treaty debates and so on, about who was in the IRB and who wasn't, and who had the right to make certain decisions. And for a lot of the IRA activists on the ground, particularly after 1920-21, the IRB, certainly outside Dublin, may not have meant as much to them as it did to the Dublin IRA, who was the core people who, who tended to be in the IRB. But just mention again about the first doll, it, it's not meant to be so small, obviously, right? A lot of the TDs are in jail, a lot of them are on the run. But the idea of the first doll was that Sinn Féin invited everybody elected in 1918. So the idea was this would be a national parliament. So the unionists would be there and the home rulers would be there, and this would be a representative body. And of course, the unionists say it's, it's absolutely, you know, it's illegitimate, it isn't. The, uh, you go to London if you're serious about this, the Home Rulers don't go either. But the idea was that this would be a national parliament representing Ireland. And the intriguing question, of course, is that if you did have, in 1919, a parliament representing all of Ireland, unionists would have made up a quarter of it, probably, you know, they did whatever, 26, 27 seats, including one popularly elected one in Dublin, Sir Morris Dockerell in Ratmines, the one unionist seat outside Ulster. Not counting Trinity, because that's kind of Rottenborough. Um, and, you know, a handful of home rulers, you know. And then if it had a, if, if that national parliament had fought elections under PR, you'd have acquitted a diverse mixture. And once Labour started entering the fray as well, you know, so. But the idea was, you know, that everybody was invited, but yeah. only Sinn Féin attended. This brings us back to the, the, the Ulster question again, uh, Niamh. Um, What's happening there? Because it's, it, I mean, how, how, how was the election greeted by unionists? Obviously, they, they did quite well themselves. Well, I mean, obviously, one of the issues with uh, among unionists, or I suppose if you want to say um, slightly differently, if you want to say among Protestants, like for, uh, I think it's worth bearing in mind that there's a lot of Protestants in the south of the country who would have been more unionist, who were kind of looking at what was going to happen in the 1918 election with you know, a certain amount of alarm because because partition is on the table here. Like this is this is what what people are looking at. And uh, Edward Carson moves his 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 seat northward because you know he or you know doesn't stand in Dublin again. Um, so there's there's a sense in which Ulster is sort of getting ready to to be you know. Be, be, be part of a difference. Is there a sense that they get their retaliation in first, you know, that the, 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 the violence in, in, in the north is, is pretty one-sided this, this period, is it not? Very much so, but I mean, um, it, it, it's the beginning of um, the, the kind of uh, sectarian sort of on the ground um, violence is an issue and um, you have a situation where things are, things are very different now from, from from now on this is this is it now we have the you know partition in earnest doesn't happen until several years on but you know we, we can kind of start looking at it from a, from a de very different point of view from from now on 
Now, there's, there's two things I, I, did, I learned when I took a, a walk around the, the exhibition a few days ago. One was, Brian, that Limerick won the All-Ireland title in January 1919, so I assume that must be the 1918 title. Mm -hmm. So what's that, 61 then? Anyway, Brian's a Limerick man here. Um, second thing I learned was... The last was, one's the most important one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the second thing I learned was, was a huge strike in Belfast in February 1919. Talk to us about that, Brian. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's an engineering strike. And see, of course, again, it's partition, you know, was on the cards, but it hadn't happened yet. And, and the industrial heart of Ireland was Belfast. I mean, this is where they had the industrial working class that Dublin didn't have. So there is, throughout the war, the war leads to a boom in Belfast in shipbuilding and so on, and in, in the linen industry, uniforms for soldiers and all the rest of it. And right across the United Kingdom, at the end of the war, then there's this restlessness about what's going to happen next. On the one hand, there's fears among um, a lot of workers that, the, um, that they're not going to get their jobs back when they come out of the army. It's not that women have taken their jobs, that others have taken their jobs. On the other, there's a tremendous militancy and confidence. So it's during 1919 you see waves of strikes, uh, particularly in Britain, um, and notably in Glasgow, where troops are sent in to maintain order. And British troops are sent into Belfast in February 1919 to maintain order, not because of intercommunal violence, but because of this strike. Now, the majority of the strikers were Protestant, but Catholics are involved. There's Catholic members of the strike committee elected by Protestant workers. One of the most prominent personalities in the strike is Simon Greenspun, who's Jewish and English, um, who's later driven out of Belfast. But the point is, in February 1919, as yet, you're not talking about a war across the country. There's still various other things going on. So, you know, the optimists would have said, well, look at Belfast. Belfast is now experiencing a strike involving Catholics and Protestants, and they're fighting over for, short, for a shorter working week and for a rise in wages and, and, and so on. But within that, then, you also have this fear, um, which is very, very assiduously cultivated by unionist politicians, that thousands and thousands of, of Protestants who fought in the war are not going to get their jobs back because their jobs have been filled by Catholics who've come in from the countryside who obviously haven't been fighting, which is a myth that grows very rapidly in Unionist Ulster, and who are going to take jobs. So you do have also communal tension, which really by in 1920 explodes, but it's there already. But for a while in 1919, you do have working-class solidarity. You have an upsurge in industrial militancy in Belfast. Um, you've got the deployment, as I say, of British troops to maintain order not for, because they're being attacked by the IRA then, but by, and the IRA, it's a long time before they attack regular British troops, by the way. Um, it's probably late 1920 before the regular British army are attacked in Dublin. So the, the war of independence, as we, as we talk about, it is very episodic and localised for a long time before it really gets very, very bitter and violent from maybe mid-1920. So in 1919 as yet, you could live in Ireland and not really say you were at war, depending on where you were from. Mm. Tipperary, under martial law, yeah, things are bad there, but other parts of the country, not so. Just going back to the Ulster situation, Brian, I mean, to what extent did, did unionist politicians, you know, whip up this sectarianism? Uh, I mean, or is that too conspiratorial an observation to make? Yeah, I mean, it's not too conspiratorial because it, 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 they, they definitely do, and the speeches that Edward Carson makes in, in 1920, in June, July 1920, and other leading unionists make essentially argue that Catholics cannot be trusted and if you work alongside them, you have to be aware of them and that the IRA's campaign in the South is going to spread here if we don't act first. But that had already been a factor in 1912, 1913, 1914 during the, the Home Rule crisis when the first 
workplace expulsions had, had taken place. I suppose what's important to remember from the point of view, again, of, of just trying to, I suppose, write people back into history, is that about a quarter of those expelled from the shipyards of Protestant, um, the so-called rotten prods, who neither community really remembers, who were either Protestants who just stood by their Catholic workmates or were socialists or trade unionists who refused to go along with the, the pogroms. So a lot of those guys are thrown out. But another factor, again, which is a messier one, is that people are expelled from shipyards and they get their jobs back. You know, so there are people who will tell you, oh, my granddad was expelled from the shipyards three times, you know, 1912, 1920, 1922. Mm. But then you would still come back when things had quietened down. But ultimately, in the longer run, they become less and less a place where any Catholic could work. But in 1920-21, when the, the tension explodes, unionist politicians stress very much this idea of loyalty and disloyalty. And Catholics are disloyal and it's, it's dangerous to have them around. And that goes alongside then a very vicious war outside <coughs> which is part of the whole island story. It's not just a Belfast story, you know. Liz, just getting back to the, 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 the guerrilla war um, in this part of the, of the country, what, what happens in 1919? Apart from Sullivan, right? I mean, it, it, does very much happen, or is, does it all really kick off in 1920? It really kicks off in 1920. 1919 is about really reorganising, and it's targeting the RAC because they are the eyes and ears. They are a paramilitary force. Um, and again, throughout 1918, the RSC had been harassing local volunteers. Um, certainly down in West Cork, um, Tom Hales, that whole, that whole family were, were being hounded. Um, so they're the actual targets of the IRA, but also while they're shooting at them, they're also driving them out of the, the barracks. Because if you imagine, there was thousands of members of the RAC in big barracks and then in little barracks in small villages. And they're driving them out of those areas and larger tracts of land are coming under control of the IRA. Because um, this already happened in 1919. This is 1919. It's, it, lots of barracks are being evacuated. They're bringing, they're centralising the RAC into bigger areas but that plays into the hands of the IRA because they can go move more freely. But then that explains the response then in 1920 with the introduction of the Black and Tans and then the auxiliaries um, and just the methods then that are used. But the RIC are the primary targets of the IRA. And how many people are killed in 1919 roughly? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. There's nothing compared to 1920. But I mean, well, just if, if I can't remember the figure for the War of Independence generally, was it about 2,000, is it? Two and a half thousand. Two and a half thousand, right? So how many are killed in 1919, roughly? You're talking about a handful of people? 30 to 40, I could be wrong. Okay, 30 to 40. Just, if, just, if, just, if we've, got, we've got assistance from the floor here. Thank you. I think it was in around the 30 mark. About 30. Uh, so it's quite small. I mean, it's quite, it's quite small. And as Liz says, mainly RIC killed, local yeah. RIC. Uh, I mean, after Solid Beg, and I suppose my comment on it, one might also see Solid Beg in the context of arming, which the IRA had been, or the volunteers had been trying to do in, 19, nine, in 1918 for resisting conscription. They were trying to get explosives. That's what they were doing in Tipperary. It wasn't so much that they were starting a war of independence subsequently. And if you take, well, there was a separate incident in Limerick with Robert Byrne. Mm -hmm. Then you had not long rescue of Sean Hogan. Then you had District Inspector Hunt shot in Thurles, who was investigating the not long incident. And you had a sort of series of things. You had uh, in Laura, uh, Sergeant shot Laura, who was again, uh, you know, places where Breen and Tracy had stayed. So they may not have really started the War of Independence, but they certainly influenced the people who did in Tipperary. And just in the first 15 months, by the end of 
say in March 1920, there was 29 members of the RIC, I think, had been killed in total. Uh, Ten of those were from the uh, North Tipperary Division of the RIC. So it, depended, it, it would very much depend who your local leaders were as well. Who you're, yeah. These yeah. were all individual groups. These were, yeah. were people acting completely yeah. independent of... And of, in uh, Dublin is the DMP, yeah. or the G Division of the DMP, because the DMP are relatively left alone in the War of Independence, mm -hmm. which is really surprising considering 1914. And you have members of the Citizen Army, it's still in the memories of people, um, but the DMP are relatively left alone. Some of them do help. Now there are, there is a chap, a member of the DMP that's killed up on High Street in 1919, but the squad is formed um, in 1919. Collins is setting up his intelligence unit, um, and you have Smith and Hoey, they're the G-men that are targeted um, by the, 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 the squad, or as it is then becomes known as the squad. So that's who's being targeted in Dublin more so than anyone else um, at that stage. Is this a problem for the, the, the movement, the national, you know, the, the, the broader movement, or does does are, are these um, these killings are they supported by popular opinion? I mean, do we know? Have we any indication of that? Um, I don't know. The, the public um, probably not so, but certainly within the the movement, if you're looking at a local level, and, and again, if you're looking at because I've researched West Cork, like the lads had to go on the run in 1918. Um, their, their families are being harassed. If there's a meeting, they're being harassed by the police. So it is becoming an us and them situation. If we don't get them, they're going to get us. Mm. Um, and they're, they're, they're their enemy. It's not the British soldiers that are doing this, it's the RIC. Mm. Um, so again, if you look at Dick McKee, he was eager to act against the authorities. Carl Brewer is ready. He brings us the idea, is it three times? He threatens to, he tries to, or brings up the idea to shoot British politicians. Um, so I think at that stage you've got a difference of support between the public and the local volunteers at that stage because if this war is coming you are going to have to fight them and as we know with this war, with any war, you're not going to be fighting with, you know, um, kid gloves, people are going to get killed. I mean right, right throughout the whole period the desperation for arms was a major motivating factor. I mean throughout 1918 there'd been lots of clashes around essentially the IRA, the volunteers attempted to steal arms from the police. The most obvious place to get weapons was the police because the police had arms. And generally what happens during 1918, and even, it even happens up to 1921, where the IRA will hold up policemen and take their guns and let them go. That happens quite a bit. But during 1918 in Kerry, two volunteers are killed in an arms raid. They attempt to get revenge by shooting the policemen involved. The policemen are wounded but not killed, so that's not listed as the, the date when all this begins. Solohoid Beg happens on the day the first doll meets, and therefore it fits very neatly into everything, but it's much more, as you say, much more complicated. And that's a coincidence. And that, it, it is a coincidence, yeah. Mm. But then over the next year, which is a lot depends on local leadership, local militancy, the relationship between the Crown forces in that area and local people as well, and also then the... the there definitely does develop throughout those years a personal element in that there are certain policemen who are notorious, who the IRA are desperate to kill, and there are IRA leaders who the police are desperate to catch. Um, and at what point, um, the other problem of course is that, you know, the, the, the Sinn Féin had said, we have a mandate for a parliament, we have a mandate for a first doll. The British government absolutely refused to accept that mandate. Now the British government, for a whole range of reasons, don't want to treat Ireland as a military problem. They argue it's, it's a policing problem. 
Lloyd George says this is a problem that will be solved by policemen with the support of the military, not a military problem that will be solved by policemen. So the theory is they're not going to deploy vast military forces to Ireland. The police are going to be in the front line. Ultimately, that means they have to militarise the police even more. Mm. But, mm. you know, initially with their global commitments, Russia and so on, they're not going to send thousands of troops straight into Ireland and have war weariness and so on as a factor too. So the police and the volunteers are up against each other from an early stage. But you also then see resignations among the police. A very, a lot of people, maybe not so keen on seeing a policeman shot dead, but they will go along with refusing to talk to him, refusing to serve him in a shop. You've got the, the nationwide boycott of the police, ostracism of police and their families, you know, local businesses refusing to serve them, and that has a big impact on the, on the RIC as well. Just to go back to your question there on the, the reaction to things like Salahid Beg, I think it's very clear from the statements of the people involved that they were met with open hostility, and, and certainly in Tipperary, it was roundly condemned. But by the time, if you go to May then, when the next episode happened in Tipperary with the rescue in Not Long, uh, things had changed somewhat. Uh, something I'd attribute to the death of the local TD, uh, Pierce McCann, had died in flu in prison in, in the UK, and his funeral became a big occasion to the point where the jury, the inquest jury refused to return a verdict of murder on the two policemen who were killed in not long. And to follow that then, I mean, when the, the Thurless IRA shot District Inspector Hunt, uh, Ernest Blyde was sent down from Dublin with the local TD to, to stop them, to tell them, look, this is just inexpedient. We're trying to get a hearing in Paris. We're trying to, to, to get things there. But so there was, you know, both within the organization as well as uh, popularly, certainly they were, they were very unpopular initially. Shooting the local policemen, you know, again in, in the areas was, was not a popular uh, in Tipperary anyway. Now, I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at the timer, guys. I want to wrap up soon. Does anybody else would like to come in and make a point or ask any questions? Yeah, this, this gentleman here, just, just wait for the mic if you could. to the first law and, and um, one of the things was that uh, there was the constitution and there was departments set up of four or five departments just to know what extent are the departments that we have today for example you had the department of home affairs to what extent would a department of justice today be a direct continuation or like was that an actual department set up then a department of home affairs was it followed you know, that there was a civil service set up at the Department of Home Affairs that then became subsequently the Department of Justice that we have now today still. Like, was that the start of that, the first dawn, uh, that 21st January 1919? Yeah, I mean, they were, they, were, they were very serious about establishing a governmental structure and attempting to, you know, take over the role of policing. So during Late 1919, you had the development of the Republican police, for example, who are separate to the IRA in theory, whose job it is to do what they say the RIC shouldn't be doing. They say the RIC are the British police, we've got our own police. There's a whole effort to establish um, a degree of local government. When they w begin winning council elections, for example, they've got to establish Dáil courts to take over from the British courts and all these things. So there is a serious effort to, to have an alternative governmental structure. And the Times of London says, you know, in early 1920, the, Qu the King's writ has ceased to run across half of Ireland, that people are actually, you know, taking these Sinn Féin courts and all these things seriously. Now, to a greater or lesser extent, they work differently in different places. And you can obviously see, you know, from town to town and locality to locality, different levels of popular support for them and whether they work well or not. But certainly all these doll departments are established 
as a serious effort to say that we've got a functioning Republican government. The foreign affairs one is absolutely seriously, and they spend an enormous amount of money on it. You know, Sean T. O'Kelly and co go to Paris, people go to Argentina, De Valera and co go to the United States. That all costs a lot of money, and it is very, very serious. It is, we've got to get this message out. Because, I mean, by the end of the War of Independence, the IRA had 3,500 rifles for possibly 70,000 men. They were, they were not in a fantastic position militarily, yet the entire world knew that something was going on in Ireland. And a lot of that was down to the, the political work of the, of the doll, you know, and the fact that it managed to, to send this message out globally. Even if they're not getting into Versailles, even if they're not getting here, even if Lloyd George is saying they're a murder gang, actually, in Madrid and in Rome and in Berlin and in New York and in Toronto, people are hearing about you know, what, what this doll is doing on the ground in Ireland. So I think that, that is a serious effort. I, th I, I think you could definitely say that for, for certain departments, mm -hmm. but definitely not for others. So, um, so the doll courts and, and you know, the justice element, foreign affairs is very much the case. Uh, as far as other departments are concerned, it's, it's, it's not so much the case. So for instance, education, was education was still run out of Britain. And the weird thing is, is that in, in 1919, uh, the British government are trying to introduce a piece of enormously reforming education legislation into Ireland. Like, despite everything that is going on, they're trying to bring in this act. And by the end of the, by the, end of the year, they gave up. But it, it's still something that they're trying to actually do. So they're still notionally trying to run the country um, in some regards. But I think there is more of a, there's more of a case to be made to say that 1922 is when the, the sort of civil service structure as a, as a whole is, is, is set up, as opposed to the, the republic and the state are different in that sense, I suppose. And the Dáil loan, that's why they, they raised the Dáil loan, is to actually fund the, the departments. Um, but the, I think early next year, there is a book coming out um, celebrating the 100 years of the Department of Foreign Affairs, and they are releasing the book. So. That's one that was directly linked um, and is still very relevant today. We'll be having a hedge school to coincide with that event. Yep. Uh, <laughs> March, I think, sometime is, is, is it's in the diary. Anybody else want to come in before we wrap up? Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, and of course, I, I do uh, recommend that you all uh, take a look at the, the exhibition before we depart. Um, 